But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may, be increased, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Life comes out of death. Sometimes it seems that life even requires death. Right? If you think about the natural world, uh, a giant whale dies, sinks to the bottom of the ocean, and its body becomes food and shelter for a teeming host of marine life. Right? The whale's death is a source of life to other creatures. Or if you think about a forest fire, counterintuitively, they are often essential for the long-term health of a forest. By destroying the old growth trees that exist, the fires open up the overhead canopy so that sunlight can reach the ground. The fires burn away the underbrush that competes with trees, with saplings and young uh, vegetation uh, for nutrients in the soil. Oftentimes, without a fire, uh, a forest will just begin to shrivel and die. Of course, I think we're familiar with this idea in the realm of human events as well, life coming out of death or life requiring death. Right? The people who stormed the beaches of Normandy at D-Day knew that it was very likely that they would die, but that their death would enable many more people to keep on living. A Nigerian man named Godwin Ajala worked as an access control officer in the World Trade Center. When the towers were struck on September 11, 2001, he sprung into action, helping to guide people out of the towers and into safety. Uh, according to accounts, he did so for hours, saving thousands of people until he finally succumbed to uh, exhaustion. Uh, ultimately, he died a few days later from all of the smoke and debris he had inhaled. On that same day, there was a chef working on the 96th floor preparing food named Benjamin Clark. When a plane, when a plane hit the building, he, the former Marine, he didn't flee, but instead he made sure that everyone on the 96th floor had evacuated uh, the building. So after making sure that hundreds of people survived, he himself began to exit the building through the staircase on the 78th floor. He found a woman in a wheelchair, stuck, unable to get down the steps. By all accounts, in the panic, everyone was just fleeing, concerned for themselves. He helped her to get out. Uh, ultimately, he died from the time that he had spent in that burning building. 
Right? These people realized the way for others to live was for them to die. Right? Life coming out of death. Of course, this is a pattern we see presented to us in the gospel, right? the message that stands at the core of Christianity. Human beings stand under a curse, under a spiritual death sentence because of our sin, our rebellion against God. There is a threat, there's a menace looming over every man, woman, and child. A disaster far more comprehensive and devastating than World War II or 9-11. We all stand under the righteous judgment of God. When God holds us accountable for our sins, it will be nothing like the, the wicked acts of Nazis or terrorists. It will be justice. And it will mean eternal spiritual death. And in order for us to be delivered from that disaster, in order for us to live, the gospel tells us that Jesus had to die. You see, God is perfectly just in his holy judgment, but he is also mind-bogglingly loving and merciful and compassionate. And so rather than consigning his people to hell that they deserve, he sent his son to die in their place. And so on the cross, Jesus, the eternal Son of God in human flesh, took our death, our sin, our guilt and shame on himself. He endured our punishment, dying in our place as a sacrifice and a substitute for us. He died so that we might live. That's the rhythm. That's the logic. That's the warp and woof of the gospel message. Our life comes from Jesus' death. And what we see today in our passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is that this gospel pattern of life emerging from death carried over to the Apostle Paul and to his ministry to the church there. Paul understood that it was through his loss, his suffering, his pain, it was as death was at work in him that life was brought to the believers there in Corinth. And so as we look at this passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18, uh, let's organize it under, under three headings. Let's try to look at it in three movements. First, let's see the purpose of Paul's problems. Uh, second, let's see the power for Paul's perseverance. And then finally, let's conclude by looking at Paul's posture towards his problems. So first there, the, the purpose of Paul's problems. The Apostle Paul's ministry was beset by difficulties. This is nothing new. If you've been here for this sermon series in 2 Corinthians, we've already heard this. If you remember, at the very beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 4, he wrote about the comfort that he received from the Lord in, quote, all his afflictions. A few verses later, later in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, he wrote about the affliction we experienced in Asia. He talks about being utterly burdened to the point that he despaired of life itself. He went on in chapter 1, verse 9, to to say that he felt like he had received a sentence of death. In verse 10 of chapter 1, he says that he had survived a deadly peril. So Paul's already introduced this idea that, that his life, his ministry, was beset by all kinds of troubles and suffering. And so here in our passage for this morning, we see him picking this theme up again. Look at what he says here about about his troubles, about his problems. 
there in verse 7. He says that we have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure that he's referring to there, of course, is the gospel. If you remember where we left off last week, he was talking about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ there in chapter 4, verse 6. And so Paul says that this treasure, right, this, this light that God shines into his people's hearts so that they can understand the glory of God in the face of Christ, this amazing gospel message of, of Jesus' death and resurrection for sinners, he says this treasure is housed in a jar made out of clay. That points to a surprise. Paul says we have this treasure of inestimable value and we carry it around in a clay jar. Right? There's a disconnect between the worth and the beauty of the object and the baseness, the common nature of its housing. Right? In, our, in our terms, Paul's saying something like we, we carry this diamond around in a shoebox. Right? But it's not just that these clay pots are common. They're also fragile. They're breakable. Uh, they won't last forever. Right? A, a clay pot was something like a disposable Tupperware uh, dish back then. It was something you could break easily. It didn't really upset you. When it, when it cracked, you just threw it away, got another one. Right? Paul is pointing to the fact here that he and his team are fragile. They're, they're prone to crack and crumble. Paul is himself the clay pot in which this gospel message is being housed. And he says, I'm not invincible like any human being. I'm made of earth and one day will return to earth. And so Paul understands that they, he and his team, will have real troubles. Right? He, is, he is not invincible. He faces real danger and real threats. Right? Paul doesn't say, look, I'm like a titanium suitcase. Nothing can hurt me. No, he says, I'm a, I'm a jar of clay eventually something's going to come along and, and break me. There in verses 8 and 9, Paul gives us a list of different troubles. This is actually one of, this is the first of four such lists that Paul can, uh, writes just in this letter in 2 Corinthians. So four separate times he stops to tell the Corinthians about all sorts of different things that he has suffered. And so his list there in verses 8 and 9, if you look, he says in verse 8 that we are afflicted in every way. So the Greek word that Paul uses there is one of his favorites. He uses it quite a bit when he's describing the various trials and persecutions that he's experienced. He uses this word a dozen times in this letter alone. It has the sense of being under great pressure, uh, being hemmed in by circumstances. Uh, he goes on there in verse 8 to say that he and his team are perplexed. That word could be translated sometimes as, as baffled. Right? The idea here is that things happen to Paul regularly that leave him uncertain and confused, that he doesn't understand, right? We, we might say that he always feels at a loss. In verse 9, he says that he and his team are persecuted. Uh, the word has the sense there of, uh, of being chased or, or driven away, right? If, you, if you've read the book of Acts, for example, you'll see that this actually happened to Paul quite often. He would go to a city, preach the gospel, and then the end result was usually him being chased out of town, or beaten, or arrested, or, or left for dead. There in verse 9, he goes on to say that he and his team were struck down. Uh, the word that Paul uses there was, was commonly used in the realm of athletics. 
uh, for being knocked down by a boxer or, or thrown down by a wrestler. It was also used in, in military terms, in battle, for someone who had been knocked to the ground by an opponent and, and thus would be about to die. Right, that's, that's quite a way to summarize your life. Right, that's quite a list. Imagine if someone asked you to describe your typical work day and your first instinct was to, to say, well, it's like being chased, perplexed, hounded, thrown down, and, and killed. Right there in verse 11, you have kind of a summary. Paul says that they are always being given over to death. Right? That was his experience of being an apostle. Now, why is Paul making a list of his problems? Why does he make three more lists in this letter? Well, at least part of the answer is that this was a major sticking point in his relationship with the church at Corinth. Uh, for many there in Corinth, including the false teachers that seem to have the ear of, of so many in the congregation, Paul's suffering and his weakness was clear evidence that he wasn't the kind of person you wanted to follow. Right? Surely God would never anoint and send a man like this to herald his gospel message. Uh, surely God wouldn't entrust the treasure of the gospel to a dinged up old clay pot like Paul. But Paul understands here that his problems were not a sign that things had gone wrong. They weren't a sign that he was somehow disqualified for Christian service. If you remember back in Acts chapter nine, the risen Jesus had said to a man named Ananias referring to Paul in Acts 9.16, Jesus said, for I will show him, that is Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Isn't that interesting? Right there in Paul's sort of call to be an apostle is, is the idea that he will suffer for Christ. It was part of the plan. But what was the purpose of all this pain? I think we get a hint there in verse 10. Paul says that in all of his problems, he is, look there in verse 10, always carrying in the body, that is in his body, the death of Jesus. And then again, if you look in verse 11, he writes that they are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So you see, Paul understands that his struggles, his pain, his trouble, his problems, all of the ways he suffers as an apostle, he understands that they are related to the death of Jesus. They're not random, they're not purposeless, but they're related to the death of Christ. He says, we're always carrying Jesus's death around with us. We're being given over to death for his sake. Right? These are not pointless problems, but are, are intimately connected to the suffering and death of Christ. As ministers sent by Jesus, they were called to follow the same pattern that he followed. Paul understands that the spread of the news of salvation through the suffering of Christ would involve them living out an experience of that death. This is what Paul had said back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, when he said, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. Right? Paul understands his sufferings are, are not purposeless. They're not random. They're, they're Christ's sufferings. These are closely related to the suffering that Jesus experienced. And notice the state of affairs there in verse 10 and verse 11. It is always the case. 
Uh, Paul says there, uh, we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Always, verse 11, being given over to death for Jesus. Paul's saying this is a, a permanent, constant characteristic of my ministry. And I think this understanding that Paul's many problems and his many difficulties were a way of participating in the sufferings of Christ, I think that helps us to understand their purpose. Because don't, don't mistake what Paul's doing here. He is not complaining. He's not whining or, or trying to get the Corinthians to be sympathetic. No, he's trying to reorient them. He's trying to get them to understand their lives and his life and ministry differently. Paul says, all this suffering that attends my ministry is a kind of participation in the sufferings of Christ. And so it has a profound purpose. Look at three things Paul tells us in this passage in terms of the purpose of his problems. Beginning there in verse 7, he says that this gospel treasure comes in this fragile clay jar for a reason. He, he says there in verse 7, the purpose is to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see, if Paul's life was carefree, if he had an easy time of it, if he was always beloved and embraced everywhere that he went, if he flew all over the world in a private jet and wore a new Rolex every week, well, you might be tempted to think, this guy's amazing. You might be tempted to think that it's his brilliance, his charisma, his rhetoric that had the power and insight to, to captivate the world. But if his life, on the other hand, was more like a clay pot, ordinary, fragile, well, then it's clear that the life-giving power of the gospel, that message that comes to spiritually dead people and makes them spiritually alive, right, that comes to the blinded and, and the veiled and opens their eyes to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, well, if that message comes in an ordinary, dinged-up clay pot, Paul says it's very clear the power comes from God. Paul's life as a clay pot, his troubles, his suffering, his weakness, his ordinariness, well, it's necessary in order to show that the surpassing power comes from God and not from him. So that's the first purpose. Paul's weakness points to the power of God. The second thing Paul says there is in verses 10 and 11. So we read in verse 10 that the reason that Paul is always carrying around the death of Jesus in his body, there in verse 10, is so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And then again in verse 11, he says he and his ministry team are always being given over to death. Why? He says in verse 11, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. There is something about the persecutions and afflictions and perplexities and trials that they faced that were a taste and experience of Jesus' own suffering and death. And the result of that death being at work in them was that the life of Jesus, Paul says, might be manifested, revealed, exposed, brought to bear on the lives of his hearers. Paul understood that his suffering, his daily experience of a kind of death, was the price that had to be paid in order for the gospel to spread, so that the message of salvation in Christ could spread to all people and bring eternal life to the church. So back in chapter 1, 
Paul told the church, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Right? Paul sees a connection between the church's spiritual flourishing and his personal suffering. Here in our passage in verse 12, he tells them, so death is at work in us, but life in you. See, Paul understands that this pattern of the gospel gets played out in his ministry. This life out of death pattern is a template by which he serves the church. Just like the heroic people at the World Trade Center or on the beaches of Normandy, they knew that they must die in order for others to live. So in the spiritual realm, Jesus sets the pattern for us that death gives way to life. Life comes out of death. Paul understands that he must suffer so that they can hear the gospel and so have spiritual life. That's the second thing Paul says about the purpose of his problems. If Paul's not willing to suffer, then he's not going to actually go to Corinth. He's not going to deal with all the problems there. He's not going to preach the gospel, and they won't have spiritual life. So Paul's suffering reveals the power of God. It makes it possible for the Corinthians to hear the gospel message and receive eternal life. The third thing that he says there in terms of the purpose of his suffering is in verse 15, where we read this. He says, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So Paul reiterates the point we just saw, that, that it all, he says there in verse 15, all of the pain, all of the persecution, all of the perplexity. Paul says, it's all for your sake. And here he adds a further benefit. He says that as grace extends to more and more people, so as the message of God's kindness and compassion and mercy and forgiveness in Christ, as it reaches more and more people through the suffering of Paul and his team, right? as the Holy Spirit uses Paul's preaching, as Paul preaches this word, to previously blind people, Paul says this ever-spreading grace overflows. It, it creates something in the hearts of the people that it reaches. Paul says there in verse 15, as grace extends to more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Right? As the ever-spreading grace of God overflows, he says it, it creates an unstoppable abundance of thanksgiving. Right, Christian, isn't that true of your own life, your own experience of the gospel message and the grace of God? Right, if you are a Christian, how many times have you been overwhelmed contemplating the grace of God to you? That he would make someone like you an object of his undying and eternal love. How many times have you been overwhelmed with gratitude that, that God would, would give up his only son, so that you could be adopted into his family? How many times have you been overwhelmed by that grace so that your, your heart just poured out gratitude and praise to God? Right, Paul says, in some ways, that's the point. Right? Think about the, how we sing, even as a church, your blood has washed away my sins. And then what do we say? Yeah, Jesus, thank you. Right, as we sing, thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. 
right? That gratitude that the gospel message creates in us as we experience the grace of God, Paul says here that that gratitude brings glory to God as we see his grace and kindness and mercy more clearly. And for Paul, that, that response in the hearts of God's people, gratitude that leads to glory, that makes his suffering worth it. Okay, so what does that mean for us then, brothers and sisters? I think Paul's example, as he, as he lays it out for us here, it ought to inform our, our expectations. And I think it should shape our impulses as a church. We aren't called to have exactly the same ministry that Paul had, right? It's unlikely that, that Jesus told anyone how much you specifically were going to have to suffer for his sake. But we are all participating in the same mission that Paul had. We, we have the same goals, with our lives, we, we are aiming at the same purpose, right? We want to see the power of God displayed through our lives. We want to see the gospel message, the grace of God spread to our families, our friends, our neighbors, our workplaces, our schools, our communities, around this region, around the entire world. We want to see the grace of God spreads so that people are overwhelmed with gratitude and God is widely thanked and glorified. Right? Our lives are pointing at the same purpose, the same goal that Paul's was, even if our circumstances and our calling is different. And so if that's the case, if we, if we have the same goals, if we have the same purposes as Paul, we should expect that we're going to achieve them according to the same pattern. And brothers and sisters, that means suffering and troubles and problems. It means weakness. If we want to see the life of Christ spreading, then we should expect to see the death of Christ manifested in our lives. I think this would be a really good thing to think and pray about. What might that look like in your life? Maybe this is a good thing to talk about in small groups or, or as you read the Bible one-to-one -one with another person in the church. Are there ways that you could be working to see the gospel spread, but, but you're not because you're reluctant to, to suffer? Maybe it's as simple as giving up some of your free time to be involved in I-55 or studying the Bible with people in your workplace or volunteering to, to teach the children the gospel during the gospel project. Maybe it's thinking and praying seriously about intentionally going cross-culturally to spread the gospel in a place where it's not known. Maybe it's just a matter of risking rejection in order to share the gospel with people in your life that, that might not receive it warmly. And I wonder if you're able to see ways that you're currently suffering ways that you're currently experiencing trouble and pain. Maybe it's through health problems, long-standing emotional challenges, frustrations at work and in your career, maybe a difficult marriage or family situation, maybe financial hardships. Could you begin to see those things not as evidence that God's plan has gone awry, but could you begin to see those things as opportunities for God's power to shine through you? Is it possible that you could change your perspective so that, like Paul, you see these, these issues not as evidence that God doesn't care, but rather as God-given opportunities to manifest the life of Christ in your suffering? 
Imagine how different your life would be if you approached your problems like that. Imagine how that, that way of thinking would shape the decisions that we make as a church and the, the things that we expect and, and want from one another. That's our first thing to look at, the purpose of Paul's problems. Let's move on then to our second point and see the power for Paul's perseverance. Uh, look back at the list of, of troubles that Paul gives us there in verses 8 to 9. He says there, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. So there is good news here. Paul has legitimate, significant problems, yes, but he understands that they're not the final word. He says there in verse 8, we are afflicted, we are pressed on all sides, but he says we're not crushed. Uh, the Greek word translated there in verse 8 as crushed, it's commonly used in the sense of, of, of restricted or constrained. It seems Paul's saying that the attacks that he faces are unable to prevent him from ministering as he should. He says there in verse 8 that he's perplexed, he's confused, he's at a loss. But, but he says, I'm, I'm not driven to despair. Right? The, the, the word, it's not really clear in the English translation, but the word that Paul uses there for despair is more intense than the word for perplexed. So he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm confused, I'm not undone. Right? Paul's saying things get bad, but, but I'm never sort of abandoned to hopelessness. There in verse 9, he's, he says he's persecuted, but never abandoned by God. Strikingly, strikingly the, the word that Paul uses there for abandoned, it's the same words that, that the gospel writers show us on the lips of Jesus at the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? Why have you abandoned me? Right, on the cross, Jesus experienced the problems and troubles of Paul only far worse. Jesus knew what it was to be afflicted and perplexed, but, but unlike Paul, he actually was abandoned. He experienced alienation and separation from God on the cross, the alienation and abandonment that we deserve because of our sin. And because Jesus endured that for us, we can be sure that like Paul, God will never abandon us in our time of need. Paul says, though, he's been struck down, right? He's been, he's been thrown to the ground, but he's never been destroyed. That, that word he uses there is a sense of being terminated, finally, right? It's a word used of those who are spiritually lost, apart from Christ, who are perishing, right? It could be Paul saying, look, even though I'm, I'm suffering physically, I know that I'm, I'm never going to die spiritually, or he could simply be pointing to the fact that up until this point, the Lord has always spared his life. That, that physical death blow has never come. It seems like we get a summary statement there in verse 16. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Paul says that his outer self, his physical body, doesn't seem to be doing all that well. His ministry is attended by weakness and pain. He is personally unimpressive. In that sense, he's wasting away. But the person that he is on the inside, he says that I experience daily personal renewal. On the inside, Paul says, I have a source of life and strength and health and peace that, that give me the ability to, to persevere. 
So the question for us then is where does that strength come from? If we see some of Paul's problems in our outer person, can we also expect to see some of Paul's strength in our inner person? Well, look at what Paul says about the source of his strength for ministry there in verses 13 to 14. He says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so also speak, so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. There in verse 13, Paul quotes from Psalm 116, the psalmist uh, there in Psalm 116, says that he had faith to speak about the Lord, even in great personal affliction. And so Paul says, hey, you know what? As I'm reading Psalm 116, I say, like, hey, that's us. We have that same kind of faith. We've been given that same trust that the psalmist demonstrated. We believe, and so we speak. Well, okay, but what did Paul believe that enabled him to keep speaking, even in tremendous trouble and difficulty. Well, there in verse 14, they, they believe, right? Actually, he says that we know that God, the, the one here is re referred to as he who raised the Lord Jesus, he's going to do two things there in verse 14. He says, he will raise us also with Jesus, right? This is Paul's sturdy conviction. We saw it back when we were studying 1 Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, Right, that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was a watershed moment in human history. That Jesus' resurrection wasn't a sort of isolated event, but it was just the beginning of a much larger resurrection that was to take place. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul calls Jesus in his resurrection the first fruits. Right? He's, the, he's the first bit of a much larger harvest. Right? Because Jesus rose from the dead, and we are spiritually united to him, Paul says, we know that we will one day be raised with him. Paul says, we share in his resurrection. Our wagons are hitched to him. So wherever he goes and whatever he does, that's where we're going as well. He died, and so our lives, our ministries are like a kind of death. Right? Paul's been explaining that to us in the passage for this morning. But that's not all that happened to Jesus. He also was raised from the dead. And so Paul says, life is at work in us now and in eternity. Friends, that's how life comes out of death. That's how death becomes a, a, a gateway to life. The resurrection of Jesus is the triumph of life over death. It's life emerging triumphant from the grave. And so that becomes the, the pattern. That becomes the fabric of reality. Death is not the final story. Life follows after it. So Paul knows that, that God will raise us with the risen Lord Jesus. The second thing Paul says that he knows there in verse 14 is that, that God will bring him, and he says also the Corinthians and all other believers into Jesus's presence. You see that there in verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Right? The apostle knows that the sufferings of this world, the problems that he faces, are not the final wor word. Rather, believers will spend eternity in the presence of the Lord Jesus, enjoying him forever in a world 
made new, a world free from sin and suffering. Right? This is the great hope that we have, right? that we will one day be in the presence of the Lord. Right? We saw this earlier in our service, reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says, look, it's a really encouraging thing to think about Jesus returning. Right? And, and the thing that's encouraging there isn't just simply that, that Jesus is coming back, but Paul says, we will be with him. Right? He's coming back, and the good news is we get to be with him. Right? Remember the thief on the cross. What does Jesus say to this man as he's dying? He says, today you'll be in paradise. No, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Right? The emphasis there is on with me. That's what makes it paradise, to be with the Lord. Remember what Paul told the Philippians as he contemplated his death. He says, look, on one level, I want to stay here and be useful to you. But I also know that if I die, I get to be with the Lord, and that is way better. Right? Paul knows. He has set his hope on the fact that he will one day, along with the Corinthians and all others who, who love and trust in Jesus, he will be brought into his presence for eternity. And in light of that, all of the pain and suffering of this moment will be more than worth it. This helps us understand what Paul means there in verse 17 when he says this extraordinary statement. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Christian, if you're suffering today, or if you're afraid of suffering, if you find yourself shrinking back when you have an opportunity to speak of Christ because you're afraid, if you're confused or perplexed by hardship in your life, it doesn't seem to make any sense. I think Paul's words here could be revolutionary. How does Paul bear up under the incredible pain and pressure and hardship that come to him as he follows Christ? Well, the key is here in verse 17. It's in the way that he compares two realities. First, the first reality is this affliction that he mentions there in verse 17. And then at the end of the verse, you have the other reality. It's the glory, he says, that's being prepared for us. Right? This glory that he speaks of, it's the beauty, it's the goodness, it's the, the brightness and love that, that believers experience when they are finally in the presence of the Lord. And so Paul's holding out these two realities, these two experiences next to one another, and he's comparing them. Right? Our, our current troubles, our, our affliction that we experience now, and the glory that's being prepared for us. And look at what he says about them. Look at what he says about his afflictions there in verse 17. He says they're light and they're momentary. The glory, however, there in verse 17, is eternal. And it's not, it's not meager, it's not a scant portion, but he says it's a weight of glory. That translation doesn't really catch the meaning of the Greek there. The idea is a massive amount, right? We might, we might say it commonly, a ton of glory, a truckload of glory. My right, friends, this is amazing. Paul has told us something of the incredible suffering that he's experienced in the course of his ministry, right? And he's going to get far more detailed, far more graphic as the, as the book goes on. How on earth could he call all of that suffering light? 
Was getting beaten within an inch of his life light? Was getting stoned more than once and left for dead light? Shipwrecked? Snake-bitten? Literally, not metaphorically? Imprisoned? Threatened by mobs? Plotted against? Slandered? Betrayed? Abandoned? Was all of that light? Well, yes. But here's what you have to understand. It's only light in comparison. It's only light in comparison to the amount of glory that he would one day experience and enjoy in the presence of God. Paul is not saying that his life is not painful. He is not saying that suffering is an illusion or that it doesn't matter. Right? It's, it's not that the, the, the Christian life is, is free from any kind of trouble. No, what he is saying is that the reward that God's people experience in glory is infinitely greater. Yes, your suffering is real. Yes, it is terrible. But there is something far greater in comparison. Right? Imagine one of those old-fashioned scales, right? Where you put something on one side and you balance it out on the other to see how heavy it is. Right? Now take all of your suffering, all of your pain, perplexity, all of your problems, all of your sorrows, and, and imagine putting them on one side of the scale so that it, it tips radically up. Right? If you live long in this world, you're going to have a lot of things to put on that scale. Right? Maybe, maybe your suffering would be the size of an elephant. Or maybe, maybe it would be the size of a whale. Or, or, or maybe it would even be the size of a, of a cargo ship. Right? That's how much pain, that's how much trouble you've experienced in your life. Well, Paul's saying that that, that might be true. But when you put the glory that God has prepared for you, when you put all of the, the love, the compassion, the mercy, the grace, the beauty, the truth, right? When you put all of that that God has in store for you in his presence, when you put that on the other side of the scale, as great as this suffering might seem, Paul says it's not even close. It's, it's like putting a mountain on the other side of the scale, right? That cargo ship might be heavy, but it's nothing compared to a mountain, Right? Not only is that future glory heavier, weightier, more significant than our present suffering, Paul also says it's going to last longer. He says our troubles there in verse 17 are momentary, but our joy is eternal. Right? You might have 80 very difficult years on this earth. I think in God's kindness, that's not most of us. We don't usually experience nothing but unremitting sorrow all of our days, right? But even if we did, Paul's saying here decades are nothing compared to eternity. Christian, do you realize that, that not one sorrow, not one pain, not one disappointment or sadness, not one ounce of suffering will follow you into the grave? Paul tells us, he who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead has promised also to raise us and to bring us into his presence. And Christian, when you get there, there'll be no suffering. There'll be no mourning. As Jude says in Jude 24, we will be in his presence with great joy. Notice what Paul says there in verse 17. He says, these afflictions, 
are actually preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. They're not unrelated to one another. They're not, they're not random afflictions. The afflictions aren't even an obstacle. But he says, in God's sovereign wisdom, they are given to us in order to prepare us and to prepare others for life in the presence of the Lord. Our suffering, Paul says, is actually preparing that eternal weight of glory for us. Christian, can you see how this perspective enabled Paul to continue speaking about the Lord, to press on in his life despite the pain? Right? He knew that in the end it would be more than worth it. And that brings us then to our third and final point, and this is where we'll wrap up this morning. We won't spend a ton of time on this, but it's important. Let's look and see Paul's posture there in verse 18. It's one thing to acknowledge the greatness of the weight of glory that God has prepared for us off in the future, but how do you actually live well and faithfully now in the day-to-day of your life? Well, I think Paul tells us there in verse 18. Look there, I'm going to start reading in verse 17 so we have context, but I want to focus on verse 18. He says there, verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So how does Paul posture himself toward his suffering and trouble in light of eternity? Paul says, by looking. The word that he uses there has the sense of paying very careful attention to something. What does he look at then? Well, he says he doesn't look at the things that are seen. So he doesn't pay careful attention. He doesn't focus his, his energy and his, his mind on the things that, that, that sort of represent this life in this world. Because Paul says those things are transient. They're impermanent. They, they last for only a moment. Right? The troubles, the sorrows that we experience in this life, the difficulties that come to us from the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? those things, Paul says, are transient. They belong to the order of things that will fade away. They are momentary. Instead, he, he looks, he focuses himself in on things that are unseen, on the truths of the spiritual realm, the truth of all that God has prepared for his people. He says these things, these unseen things, are eternal and thus of infinitely greater value. I don't think that's too difficult to understand. Right? If you are a follower of Christ, then you are invited, you are encouraged to adopt Paul's posture as your own. But how exactly do you do that? I think the big problem that most of us have is that we're passive. We hope that someday we will wake up and find that we have the same posture that Paul has here. We hope that if we kind of wish it were so, that if we just keep going about our lives doing the same things, someday everything will be different and, and we'll be made strong in suffering with an eternal perspective. But Paul shows us here, I think, why that's probably not going to happen for you. He says that the things of this world, even though they're momentary, even though they're impermanent, they are seen. That is to say, they are visible. They are accessible. They're obvious. Right? Think about the things that are in your face every day. Your bank account balance. The way you look. 
how you perceive the way others think of you, your employment situation, your house, your car, your clothes. Right, it's easy for those things to dominate your sight because they're right here, and even though they're momentary, they're visible. And that means that if you, if you just simply drift, if your plan is to just wake up each day and see where things take you, that's all you're going to wind up looking at every day because those things are in your face. They're brought to you on the internet, in the mailbox, on the TV, in the radio, in podcasts, right? Those are the things bombarding you and flooding you. And if you do nothing, that will be all that you see. Those are the winds that will sort of blow your course and determine where you go. But on the other hand, the things that have the power to transform us, the, the weight of glory that God has prepared for us, Paul says that is eternal, but there's a problem, and that is they're unseen. Seeing those things requires faith. It requires you to believe the promises of God. Right? That's what Paul's talking about there in verse 13 when he says, We have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we speak. Paul says we've been given faith to, to see these things that are unseen. But it requires careful attention, right? Paul says we look to these things, right? We, we intentionally set our gaze on them, right? If you simply go with the flow of your daily life, you will live in light of all the wrong things. You'll be controlled by the, the ups and downs of the things that are seen. But we can, like Paul, learn to make these spiritual realities the things that shape and determine our lives, that serve as the foundation of our joy, that that become the, the way we respond to suffering and trouble. And so this is, I think, what we need to do in response to what we see in this passage. If you are in Christ by faith, God has incredible things prepared for you, an eternal weight of glory that, honestly, we can't even begin to fathom, right, that would blow your mind and make your current suffering seem light and momentary. Our calling now is to live in light of that future glory, that future reality, right? Our goal now is to allow that future truth to steal your spine and steady your hand in suffering. And so how do we do that then? If we want to look to those things, if we don't want to just drift along, sort of constantly being uh, distracted by the, the seen things in front of us, how do, we, how do we live in light of that future glory? Well, the good news is it's not a mystery. You don't need some special technique. You don't have to attend a conference or buy a book. You don't need a spiritual epiphany. God has actually given us everything we need to do exactly what, what Paul tells us he does here, looking not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Simply read God's word and ask the Holy Spirit to help you look in his word to see things that are, that are maybe not seen physically in front of you. Ask the Holy Spirit to use God's word as you, as you take in this truth to begin to be reoriented to the reality of eternal, lasting things. Right? Ask the Holy Spirit to make that weight of future glory more real to you, to your mind and to your heart, than the problems that are right in front of you. And let me say, this is one of the things I think we do for each other in the church. This is one of the reasons we get together every Sunday. Not just because we don't have other things to do or because we want to check off the box and get God on our side this week, 
but we come together to remind one another that there are unseen, eternal things that are far more important than the things that we sort of have in our face the other six days out of the week. Right? Everyone and everything out in the world encourages us to be obsessed with the here and now, to live as best we can for maximum comfort and ease in this life. But it's here as we come together and we, we hear God's word that the Holy Spirit provides for us an oasis of sanity, right, where we can encourage one another as we sing, as we pray, right, as we hear God's word, as we speak to one another after the service, as we share our lives through the week. We actually serve one another by helping us, each other, to focus on these eternal things. Right, do you see how that's one of the gifts that we have in the church? A group of people committed to one another who all are committed to, to placing a greater value on the eternal weight of glory that God has prepared for us than all the things that are, that are precious once you go outside these doors. And of course, friends, the Lord's Supper is a great gift to us as we pursue Paul's posture here. So again, we celebrate the supper not out of habit, not out of tradition. It's not something we do to make ourselves feel spiritual. But rather, in his great kindness, God has put on display for us. He's actually made visible to you and to me those unseen spiritual realities that ought to shape our lives. Right here on display for you is the bread representing the broken body of Christ. Here on display for you is the cup representing the shed blood of Christ. Right? These are the things that secure your salvation. These are the things that give you a sure hope of eternal glory, far surpassing and outweighing whatever trouble you're experiencing in this life. See, here in the Lord's Supper, we have a foretaste. The Lord gives us an appetizer, a picture of what it will one day be like in the presence of the Lord when he brings us to be with him and we can feast with him in eternity. Right, so let's turn our attention now to the Lord's table. And let this be an opportunity for your soul to look carefully at the things that are unseen, the things that are eternal. A couple of things for us as we celebrate. First, the table is for all those who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ for salvation. Right, that's how we lay hold of these invisible spiritual realities. That's how they become reality for us. So if you're not a follower of Christ, if you haven't turned to him in faith, we'd ask for you not to participate in this part of our service in terms of coming forward to take the bread and the cup, because ultimately that would be a celebration of something that's not yet true of you. Instead, we'd encourage you to take time to, to reflect on what you've heard, to reflect on the, the great promises that God makes to anyone who will come to Christ in humble faith. And we'd encourage you to take time, ask God to help you to see these invisible but eternal truths in Christ. Now, if you are a follower of Christ, but if you're not a member of this particular local church, we believe the Lord's Supper is for all those who have trusted in Christ and who have demonstrated that trust and repentance by obeying Christ's command to be baptized and who are connected in membership to a church that believes the same gospel you've heard here this morning. And so if you're a baptized member of another church that believes and preaches the same gospel and you're allowed to take the Lord's Supper there, uh, we invite you, we welcome you, we encourage you to come to celebrate with us this morning. 
If you have questions about whether or not it's appropriate for you to participate in the Lord's Supper, I'd encourage you to look inside the bulletin uh, there on the uh, inner page. There's some uh, guidelines that you might find useful. And in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul encourages the members of the church to examine themselves before they come to the table. Uh, we want to take time uh, to confess our sin, uh, to come before the Lord with a clear conscience. And so I'm going to invite Michael Collins now to come up and lead us uh, in a prayer, confessing our sins, uh, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together.